Good morning. Well, this morning we are starting our Advent Conspiracy, and I know some of you have been wondering, what the heck is that? Well, we're going to explain it now, but I need to switch this over. You have a flyer, or you should have been given a flyer. Uh, if you take it out right now, we can kind of go over a little bit of what this is going to be about. An Advent is celebrating the coming of Christ. And what we are conspiring to do is make Christmas something that we could once again worship instead of get frustrated and caught up in the consumer mentality that it has become. You know, when you see videos like those people rushing into the store, you, you just have to wonder, oh my gosh, what does this even have to do with Jesus? What, what on earth is going on? And how many times are we just caught up in that scenario? Oh boy, there's a great deal. And so we, you know, man, they moved it up to now it was midnight. I think Toys R Us, they were meeting at 10 o'clock for the, you know, Black Friday. It's still Thursday, but it's Black Friday at 10 o'clock. How's that work? Just to save, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, because it's all about the stuff. And we really have a better story to tell, and that's what the Advent Conspiracy is about, is to reframe our mentality and give Christ a place, an opportunity to be worshipped as he deserves. This is really what the purpose of the Advent Conspiracy is. What if Christmas became a world-changing event again? What if it stopped being about the shopping, stopped being about the gifts, and started being about an opportunity to worship Jesus with how we live. And so it's real simple. This is kind of what we've broken it down. It it was actually started about five years ago. Uh, About five churches in the Oregon area started this Advent conspiracy. And they found that by gathering together and getting the people who are part of their different fellowships to participate, together they were able to do a lot. Whereas... By ourselves, we might be able to do a little. First of all, this is all about worshiping Jesus. It starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. It's kind of a holistic approach that we want to deal with. It's all about who Christ is, he's come, why he's come. He's given himself to us. When God gave Jesus to us, he didn't give a gift. He, He gave of himself, he gave relationship. That's what we need to imitate. We need to imitate those things. And so the idea here is, and you can read through this. I'm not going to read through it at all. If you didn't get one of these, we have some more in the back. The idea is that you can spend less. Now, we're not getting all Scrooge on you, okay? All the kids are worried. What are you saying? (laughs) Shh, quiet. My parents are here. We're not getting all Scrooge on you. We're not telling you don't buy gifts. We're not telling you that. What we're doing is saying, what if you bought one less gift. You know, that one less Starbucks card that you give to someone just because I bought so many, I need to give to, the, to someone else. Sorry, Royce, no offense to you who work at Starbucks. Support Starbucks. I do. Uh, what if you gave one less gift? What if $20 less was taken and then was able to be given towards something else. Well, $20 just by yourself is only $20, but if we have 
say, ah, just rounded up to 200 people who are a part of Genesis. Now we've got $4,000. And what we want to do is provide opportunities for us to worship with that one less gift. One of the ways that I'm going to talk a little bit more about at the end is going to be the healthy start with the kids, where we can give that gift of approximately $20. The other area where we are going to be involved in is Haiti. There is a school, St. Andres in Haiti, that had a lot of damage due to the earthquake past year or so ago. And there's over 100 students, and the bathroom that they have to use is falling over, and it's disgusting. And so here are these kids, some of these young ladies who are just dressed pristine in their school clothes, and they have to go in this dilapidated, collapsing toilet. And it would cost $2,500 to build them a new facility so that they can have a good bathroom facility that's not falling over and isn't disgusting. We're going out in February. I'd love to be able to go out in February and hand Jeannot a check for $2,500 and say, here, buy a new bathroom, fix it, make it happen. Why? Because we decided to give one less gift. We provided something that's really beneficial to hundreds of kids that they will use every day. And so that's the idea of spending less. And the idea of giving more is to involve yourself with the things that you do. Don't just go out and buy a gift. What if you make a card? Say, you don't know how bad my handwriting is. I'm not creative. I can't do anything like that. Bake something. Cookies are always good. Always. Especially peanut butter ones. They're, they're always good. What if you, instead of buying something, you gave something? You know, it's kind of funny. Over the years, all the gifts that I have given, say, to my mom at Christmas, she still has in this old shoebox this Christmas tree that I made when I was in kindergarten, made out of clay. And it's hard to tell it's even a Christmas tree, if you know what I mean. It's, it's green and it's kind of cone-shaped. That's about it. But I gave it to her when I was a kid. It was a gift, and she still has it. This year, I'm going to make another one. (laughs) Figure it works so so good for those years, I'll just do it again. (laughs) But those things we give mean so much more than just buying something and giving something. Especially clothes. I don't know how many things I bought for my wife, and I found out she never wore that. I was sure Nehru was coming back in. I don't know what happened. That Nehru dress, it was beautiful. (laughs) Instead of buying, involve yourself. So spend less, but give more. This is about being with those people we love, being with the ones we really care about, stopping the madness, and taking time to really involve ourselves with the life of the people that we care about. And you see, what we are trying to do with this is not just kind of gain our own sanity. What we're really trying to do is bring opportunity for others to join and worship with us. See, if you tell your friends and your coworkers, you know what we're doing this Christmas? Instead of getting everyone a gift, we're buying one less gift and we're taking that money and we're going to help kids who are 
a part of the school district who don't have money, who can't afford to get things or can't afford gifts. We're helping them out or we're going to do this in Haiti. We're going to develop this and we're going to take that money in this. Would you like to be a part of that? See, now you've got people who don't go to church, maybe don't even believe in Jesus, but they're definitely a part of doing those good things. And it's a part of what God wants to bring back into this idea of Christmas is not about the stuff. It's about giving of ourselves, even as Christ gave himself and God gave Jesus to us. And it's an opportunity for them to actually come and begin to worship and perhaps see that Jesus is the Christ. And so we want to make this an invitation for those who are outside. We want this to be inviting by what it is, just in itself, because this is more of the heart of God than Target or Walmart, whatever your choice of poison is. Love all. When Jesus loved, he loved in ways never imagined. Though rich, he became poor to love the poor, the forgotten, the overlooked, and the sick. He played to the margins by spending less at Christmas. We have the opportunity to join him in giving resources to those who need help the most. And so, Genesis, we want to take this opportunity. And for the next four weeks, we are going to be talking about Christ, his coming, what that means, culminating on Christmas morning where we're going to meet here and we're going to sing carols and we're all going to gather as a family and we're going to acknowledge and celebrate who Jesus is, what he's done in our lives and what he desires to do in the world around us. And so this is the strategy. This is the conspiracy. This is what it means when we say Advent conspiracy. We are going to bring Jesus to be the focus once again in not only our Christmas, but hopefully that of our community, hopefully that of those that are around. We want to invite other churches next year to be a part of this. One group, between five churches, they raised $500,000 and built over 30 wells out in Africa just by them gathering together. Imagine what a little bit less of the shopping does and how much good it can make in the name of Christ. And so that's what we want to do for this Advent conspiracy. And so this morning, what we're going to begin with is talking about family. And you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll, we'll get to that passage shortly. But family is the context where our spirituality is really tested the most. It's most clearly seen. Family knows who you are. They know all your shortcomings. It's where the evidence of your sinfulness gets collected and sometimes even held against you. But we're not so much concerned about our shortcomings because we can't help but notice the shortcomings of everyone else in our family. And you know that. We all have those people in our family. And it's made up of so many different people. You have grandmothers and grandfathers, aunts, uncles, cousins, all those cute, adorable, obnoxious nieces and nephews. You know, you find something broken. Who did this? You know it was one of the nieces or nephews because they're running around like wild people. But no one admits to it. You, you've got brothers, sisters, 
stepbrothers, stepsisters, moms, dads, stepmoms, stepdads. Sons, daughters. You find yourself in the midst of this group of people, whether you like it or not, this is a geography that you find is shaping who you are. And so many times we'd like to get out of this place. We want to escape this. And they all live imperfect lives. And you're so aware that your family is so dysfunctional. It's amazing when I hear people talk and they say, oh, man, my family's messed up. And you hear them talking, oh, yeah, mine too. And so this family tree is one of full dysfunction. And yet this is the community of relationships that shape us. It frustrates us. And it's also the community that loves us. Yet when we think about living out our faith in a meaningful way, we seldom think of our family as the place to do it. You know, we dream of going to exotic places as missionaries. I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to go to China. I'm going to go to Haiti. And so when we think of going out on a mission, no one wants to go home. That's just not inviting. That's so plain. I live there. And so we exclude it in our minds from a place that really we are to involve ourselves with. And with our families, we, we don't pray for mercy. What we do is pray for patience. We're frustrated. We, we pray that we can tolerate these people. And again, then there are so many situations in our families that cause difficulty, cause tension. There's the dad who left. And so Christmas time, you gather together, but dad's not there because he left with some other woman. There's the mom who's passed away. And so now there's this hole in the celebration because mom was really the one who did all those things that were so special. There's the sister who who doesn't forgive and, and is having conflict with one of the siblings, the son who's been estranged and hasn't been seen in years. And you get together and there is this tension that weighs over the family situation. And it's difficult and it's an awkward place to be. But if we are going to take the Advent seriously, then we can't overlook our family. We can't go through the motions with our family. This is a group of people that we are related to, and it actually becomes, again, the geography of our soul's formation. I remember one year, Corrine and I, we had the twins, and they were about two years old, I think. And so they were up and walking around. And we had some good friends of ours who had one boy who was just a little bit older, maybe three years of age. And we were really close. And we thought, you know what we're going to do this Thanksgiving? We're going to go off by ourselves and we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. We're going to start our own tradition. Forget the family. It's always a hassle. We're going to start our own tradition. And i got to give you a little background with these Friends that we had, he had real good connections with some people. And every year we used to stay for about three years up at this place in Big Bear. It was called the Chateau. And the Chateau was three stories right on the lake. Three master bedrooms that overlooked and you could see the lake. 
The third floor was a game room, had a, a pool table, had checkers, and had a huge kitchen, indoor barbecue, fireplace, an amazing place. And we used to go there, and for a week, we would just relax. With our kids there, they'd go play in the snow. We'd throw rocks into the pond or the lake. And we just enjoyed this time. It was really a time to settle down, eat good food, sip coffee, looking outside as it's snowing, and you're warm and toasty. And so this is our experience, right? We go up there every year. Our kids were babies. They're growing up now. They can walk. And we think at the last minute, well, let's find a place in Big Bear. We're going to go do this again. Well, we couldn't get the chateau. It was already booked. So we rented another place. They hadn't seen it. We get there, and the place is all of about 15 feet wide. Two stories, two bedrooms, and one bathroom. Remember, there's seven of us. There's a table that sits three because you fold it out from the wall. It wasn't what we were used to, and it wasn't what we expected. And so we're in this tiny cubicle with three toddlers. It's freezing outside. And I remember at the end of this thinking, I mean, the fireplace was so small, you had to put the log like half in and just keep pushing it in, you know. <laughs> Get in there. And I remember thinking, and Karina and I were thinking, you know what, next year we just, we need to go back to our family. It was as if God was saying, really? Really? You're going to just leave your family? And it's like, here, take this. <laughs> I'm sorry, God. But we want to bypass that place where we are really formed, where we're really created, and that is our family. I think to help us better understand our family tree, we can look at Jesus' family tree. God gave Jesus Christ through a family tree that is full of love, scandal. It's full of sin and mercy. In some ways, this is the most miraculous family tree of all. And in some ways, it's the most ordinary, the most natural. It's one of those strange combinations that something so glorious could come from something so ordinary. If you've ever been in a delivery room, seen a birth, when I've I seen the birth of my children, it's the most amazing thing yet it's the most raw, bloody, and natural thing. And there's this definition of what is amazing, but what is natural. And that is so much the case that we have here in the birth of Jesus. And, and what Matthew does is give us this ordinary miracle of a family tree that brings us Jesus. As God's breaking his way in, he's doing so to love your family. And so what I want to do as we are going to go through the genealogy, I know you usually think, really, we're going to just read a bunch of names? Realize this, that these names are people who are part of Jesus' family. We're going to talk about them a little bit more, just like the people who are part of your family. And, and I want your imagination 
to just kind of capture the reality and the humanity of Jesus' family as we read through the genealogy. Just allow the humanity of this family tree to take hold of you as we read it together. Tony? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose father was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Naashon, Naashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliad, Eliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus were the fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile of Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah. Thank you, Tony. I wasn't about to read all those names. Matthew is doing something here with his genealogy. More than just giving us a history lesson, he is teaching about God. He is teaching theology. That's what theology is, the study of God. And in verse 1, he begins with this basket of promise. As he talks and gives the foundation of, of where... This genealogy comes from. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. The entire world is going to be blessed through your seed. It was God's promise to Abraham, and Matthew is pointing us to that promise still. And then David was told that a son would sit on his throne forever. 
And so here are these two baskins of promise that God has given to us, as well as to Abraham, as well as to David. And and in this genealogy, he lists four women, but they're the wrong women. You see, if he was going to list the, the matriarchs, he would list the wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. But he doesn't. Instead, he picks women that you really don't want to talk about. These are the people in the family that you don't mention at Christmas time. How's Uncle Joe? Ixnay on the OJ. Why, what happened? Oh, he's in prison again, man. What did he do this time? Shh, shh, shh. And he didn't do this on accident, okay? He didn't say, oh, oh, forgot. He did this on purpose because he's trying to teach us and he's preaching to us the gospel through the genealogy. He starts off with Tamar in verse 3. Tamar we see in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar married one of Judah's sons. His name was Ur. That's right, Ur, E-R. He wasn't real smart, Ur. (laughs) What's my name, Dad? Come on, son. (laughs) And Ur died. And so... What was supposed to happen through the law is she was to marry one of the brothers so that they could take care of her. But she kept getting passed up. Judah said, well, when so-and-so gets old enough, then we'll let you marry him. By that time, it was going to be too late. So what Tamar did is she kind of set the scenario up and she had to know something about Judah because she played the role of a prostitute, a shrine harlot. And when Judah came into town, she disguised herself. He went in, slept with her, and she said, well, for payment, you can owe me something, but I I need something kind of as collateral. I'll take the signet ring, and I'll take your staff. And so Judah gave her the signet ring, gave her the staff, went off to go get the money, went to the ATM there in town, came back, and she was gone. He said, que sera, sera, whatever it will be, will be. She can keep the staff, keep the ring. I'll call it payment in full. Well, later on, Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, and he flips out. And he wants to have her killed because she was married to my son, and now she's pregnant. That woman. And so Tamar, in her wisdom, sends to Judah the ring and the staff and said, I am pregnant by the man who owns this. Judah says, she's more righteous than me. And so we see in Tamar, that the family tree is a tree of sinful people. This isn't the best of the best. But it's also 
a tree that preaches the grace of God. Next, we come to Rahab. Rahab, we know from the book of Joshua, after the exodus, after they had crossed the Jordan and they're moving into the land of promise, they send out spies into the land to see if they're able to occupy the land. They go into Jericho and they're being chased. They know that there are these spies there and they find refuge with Rahab, who again is a prostitute. And she hides them and she, she gives this great testimony of faith. She says, we know all about you guys. We know how you were able to defeat the Egyptians, how you crossed over the Red Sea and that this land belongs to you. We know that God is going to give you this land. Everyone is fearful. Protect me and my family when you come in and conquer this. And so they tell her, we will protect you. And she hangs a a red scarlet cord in her window so that they'll know this is the home of Rahab and her family. And so they are protected. But you see, Rahab is preaching to us that this is not just about the Jewish people and a pure lineage because she's a Canaanite. This is, again, preaching to us that in spite of her bad track record, there is a God of mercy. So it's not about being born into the right family. It's about a God of mercy. Next, we see Ruth. Ruth comes into the story, and Ruth is a Moabite, someone who wasn't supposed to get in to the family line. And Ruth is pretty aggressive with this guy named Boaz. I think there's a lesson there for you ladies, but I'm not going to go into it today. I think Boaz is a cool name. It would make like a great rock band name. Heavy metal name, Boaz. At least I think so. I just like the way it sounds, Boaz. And so Ruth pursues Boaz, and Ruth sticks with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and ends up finding favor with Boaz. And Ruth is a story of redemption. As Boaz plays the, the kinsman redeemer, and he brings what was not supposed to be in the line, into the line, we see that this is preaching a tree of redemption. And again, Matthew is doing all this on purpose. We see that Ruth is indeed someone who comes into the tribe, even though she was supposed to be someone who would seem unreachable, that God will be worshipped by all people. Next, we see Bathsheba, and she doesn't even get her name mentioned. It just says, Uriah's wife. And and we all know the story of David and Bathsheba. Here it says, when the kings were supposed to go out to war, David stayed at home. You know the story. He saw Bathsheba bathing, called her. 
to himself. Slept with her. She was pregnant. Oh, no. What do we got to do? Got to fix it. Go get Uriah. He's on the lines. Bring him home. Comes in. Hey, Uriah, how's things going? Oh, the battle's fierce. Yeah, this is going on. Okay. Well, good. Hey, why don't you go home? Go be with your wife and talk to you later. But Uriah was more noble than David, and Uriah said, how can I go in and sleep with my wife and be in the comfort of my own home when my men are out on the battlefield so he sleeps out on the porch of the king's house? They come and they tell David, hey, David, he didn't go home. He just slept on the porch. Ah, man. So they get him drunk because usually that works. But Uriah still doesn't go home, and so now he's got a problem. And so Uriah carries his own death sentence out. And as he's put on the front lines, they're told to withdraw, and he's left there to die. And so here we have adultery and murder from Israel's best king. And we see once again that this is not about our righteousness, but this is about God's goodness, God's mercy. And these are the good years. <laughs> this is the good time in Israel's history. Because after this time, from Solomon to the exile in Babylon, they go through some horrendous times. They've got some wicked kings who do some wicked things, idolatry starts to show up and they start worshiping other gods and false gods. And we see kings doing great wickedness, idolatry is rampant, and then we see that God's judgment brings them to exile. Because not only is he a God of grace, not only is he a God of mercy, but he is holy and he is just. And we look through these years and you say, how can anything good come from this? Through the evil that is being done. And Matthew moves from the exile to Christ and he teaches us that God is the God of faithfulness. That his faithfulness is not dependent on us, which is very good news. It's good news not only for us, but it's good news for our family tree. You have people in your family that are struggling, that might fall into somewhere this category that we've just briefly glanced over. God is the God of faithfulness. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of judgment. And he is the God of faithfulness. And Matthew is preaching that through the genealogy of Christ. When it looked like everything had fallen apart, God was actually putting everything back together. He's faithful to his promise, and he promised a savior. To Abraham, to David. God's love is merciful, it's holy, but finally, it's faithful. 
And we see that Matthew read the scriptures from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, the Kings, the Chronicles. He read all these things, and it seems that he's looking at all these things through the lens of Jesus Christ. The promise of God, Abraham's seed, David's son, in the womb of the fifth woman mentioned here, which is Mary. All God's loving mercy, holy judgment, and faithful love pointed to the child, Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness. We recognize that every family there is the need of this kind of Savior, this kind of redemption. Every family needs this. And Jesus' family tree is much like our own. He wants to love your family this Advent through you. He doesn't want your faith to be disconnected with those who make up your family in spite of who they are, in spite of where they are. God is faithful to them and he wants to be faithful to them through you. And so the Holy Spirit is desiring to shape us through these relationships that we find ourselves in with our family. And Jesus came, and this is the lineage he came through. There is hope for your family. He is a God of mercy. He's a God of judgment. He's a God of faithfulness. And so, in keeping with this idea of the family, one of the areas this Advent that we want to help is help families who are in need that are here in our community. That's where the Healthy Start gifts come into play. The information is here. It explains what's going on, and the board is there for us to involve our lives with the lives of these families. A lot of these kids who are going to school or hanging on by a thread. They don't have the materials to buy school supplies, let alone buy a Christmas gift. And so we have the opportunity to come aside and help them and bless them in the name of Jesus. We are going to be able to give the gifts out on the 18th and 19th. We're going to be able to put a little card in there from Genesis explaining the love of Christ for them. We need some people that will be able to go and give those things out. And I'll be talking with those people who are able to do that at that time so we can share what we want to share with them. But this is our opportunity to involve ourselves in the families of those in our community to, again, show that Jesus is God's faithfulness to you. Just like he is his faithfulness to me. That there is incredible hope for us, for our families, and for your family. And so our invitation is that as a community, we will gather together and we will let those around us who are in need know this God cares about them. How how will they know? Through our care for them. And so I, I... You know, we don't even pass a plate here. We're not here to pressure anyone 
what we're doing is op- offering an invitation, an opportunity to join in with the work that God desires to do in our community. We had 41 names. I know some have already been taken. Again, they have the information of, you know, the child will be five years old, a girl, and a gift idea, Hello Kitty. And you can look those over and see which one you might be able to fit, and then it's about $20. I know last year, some or two years ago, I think we did it. Some of you were very generous. I'm not going to tell you not to be generous, but like Michael said, you know, if their brother gets the Skittles, it could be bad news for mom and dad. And what we are desiring, the information is here, but that you pick out a name, buy a gift, wrap it, and bring it back next Sunday. We'll be able to do this again next Sunday, but you'll actually have to take the gift to Joanne's house after that because we're going to give them out before that time. I hope that this Christmas becomes an opportunity for us to worship Jesus as never before. To be able to bring the reality of this promise of God into our lives and into the lives of those around us. And it begins with our families. Let's pray. Father, as we look through your lineage, as we talk about just some of these people, some of us might be thinking, wow, we have it pretty good. Our family wasn't that bad. And what you are telling us, God, is, again, you are faithful. You are able to do what is seemingly impossible, the miraculous, through the ordinary, through the natural. And we pray that you would do that through our lives as we give of ourselves to to you and to those who we love. Lord, may we make a difference. May we truly worship you and how we live our lives. And I pray you give us patience with our family. There are some members that maybe just rub us the wrong way. There are some situations that are so awkward, so difficult, some things that have happened that are still hurting. There is bitterness that is there. And may we see, God, that you are merciful, you are just, and you are faithful. And may we represent that to those who we spend this season with. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.